as you probably know, we'll be looking at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. So you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we will be starting the study of that tonight. Um, I am, needless to say, um, as Pastor Mike has said before, um, brevity is an art. And um, I don't know how much of that art form I have mastered, but tonight we will definitely see um, if I if I can get through this first chapter. So I think before we start, let's just have a word of prayer and we'll fall into it. Father, we come to you tonight and um, I thank you, Lord, that we can spend this time together, Lord, and um, just look forward to learn more about you and grow in the knowledge of you and um, be able to be encouraged and um, edified by this lesson, Lord. I ask that you would please be with us. Um, please, um, Lord, help me to to speak clearly and to speak as you would have me speak. And um, fill me with your spirit now, Lord, and be with everyone who's listening as well, that um, you would give them ears to hear, Lord, and that you would be glorified in this evening. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one thing to give a lesson. It's another thing to give it without people looking back at you. I guess I understand what Pastor Mike has been going through, through for the last while. But anyways, okay, so the book of Ephesians, just as introduction, um, the book of Ephesians written by, obviously, the Apostle Paul. Um, its date of writing is 60, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD, which is um, one of the later epistles that um, Paul wrote. Um, it's one of the prison epistles um, um, that um, Paul wrote. So that's written from Rome at the, at the end of his missionary life, if you could put it like that. You can um, read more about um, this time when, um, when Paul was in Ephesus in um, Acts chapter um, end of Acts chapter 19 is when Paul went, uh, end of Acts chapter 18 is when Paul went there for the first time on his second missionary journey, um, where he met Priscilla and Aquila. And then his, the main time that he spent there was on his third missionary journey. And that you can read about in Acts chapter 19. And he speaks to the Ephesian elders when he departs from Ephesus in Acts chapter um, 20. So this is also the place where Paul spent the most time of all the other churches that he planted and visited is um, is the in, in Ephesus, which he spent three years at. Um, the second longest is in um, in Corinth, where he spent 18 months. Now, um, Ephesus also was the commercial and political religious center of Western Asia. Um, like other ancient cities, Ephesus was deeply religious. Her chief devotions were directed to Diana, which is called Artemis by the Greeks, and is the Asian goddess of fertility. So they they um, they prayed to a goddess of fertility. Um, the Temple of Diana was one of the magnificent um, buildings ever constructed in the Greek world and was acclaimed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And when excavators opened the old city of Ephesus, they found a, a Colosseum type of or a, um, a, a, a temple and they found, um, I think it's called a Colosseum, a theater that they found that could accommodate 24,000 people. And it's most likely in places like this where, where Paul would have 
um, got, got up to preach and um, it might have been where he, in, in, we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he might have fought with beasts. Um, so it was a very Greek city, it was a very pagan city. And um, we know that Paul spent a lot of time there and laid a foundation for one of the strongest churches um, in the first century. Um, the theme of the book I would give is unity. The theme of the book is unity. Um, unity between God and man and also um, unity between Gentile and Jew. We also find a unity between doctrine and practice. And you'll see this come out as we go through through the book. You can have a look at Ephesians 1 and um, verse 10. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth. So there's already you see the theme of unity coming together. Ephesians 2 verse 6, we read, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. Um, you also there see, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, speaking about Jew and Gentile. So you'll see this throughout the book. There's a lot of unity that is um, spoken of here. Now, I would like to divide the book into um, two sections. Um, the first section is chapters one to three, where we find Paul mainly speaking about um, doctrine. Um, he speaks about the plan of salvation, or you could call it the gospel story. So that's chapters one to three. And then chapters four to six, he switches from the doctrinal side to the practical. How do we apply the doctrines from chapter um, one to three? So chapter one to three is doctrinal. Chapter four to six is practical. And you could also call that the personal story. So the gospel story and the personal story. We'll divide those chapters in as we go along. So in Ephesians chapter one, um, I'm just going to divide it into two pieces. The first part is from verse 1 down to verse um, 14, where um, Paul basically speaks about the, 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 the salvation plan. Um, and he speaks how this plan came to effect at Ephesus. And then from verses 15 onward, he's going to pray for them. He's going to pray um, from verses 15 to the end of the chapter. He's going to pray for them that this plan would grab a hold of their life and grab a hold of their hearts. So, let's get into verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a verse 1 and 2. Um, verse 2 says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical greeting for Paul to um, most of these um, churches, but um, there's a few things I'd like to emphasize in, in verse 1 already. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul is emphasizing that he is an apostle, a sent one, purely through God's grace. Um, if you think back, of he, think back at his conversion, you'll know that God supernaturally intervened in Paul's life in Acts chapter 9. So he's just emphasizing 
that he um, that God is the one who called him and that it is purely by God's grace that he is in the ministry. And then it also sends, say, says in the end of verse 1 that to the saints that are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ. So some commentators make this the, the same group, um, these faithful and these saints. But I think there's some a lesson to learn here, and that is that there's a faithful in Christ, and there's also just the saints. And so a saint, I want to say, is the general way of referring to someone who is saved. But a faithful one is someone who is seeking God and God's will for his life. And so there is a difference between these two groups. And Paul emphasizes that, and he sees it in the same group of people or the same church. And so in a church, you'll find saints and you'll find the faithful in Christ. And I think the question each of us should ask ourselves is, which one are we? Because technically, we should all be both in the local church. We should all be both. We should be saved, but we should also be faithfully serving the one who saved us. In verse 2, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, grace and peace. Paul acknowledges the source of true grace and peace, that it is from God. But he also wishes them to have more of this grace and peace. Paul is essentially saying, may this letter find you living in the grace and peace, and may it also offer you more grace and peace as we go through these things um, that he received from the Lord. I think grace and peace is definitely something that we can um, be more involved in personally, in a church, um, playing our part in administering this grace and peace um, to those around us because of the one who gave us so much peace and who has given, shown us so much grace. Now, in the next few verses, from verses 3 down to verses 13, um, Paul is going to speak about the beauty of this salvation plan. You'll see him consistently referring to the true church. In other words, those who are made of, made up of those who are in Christ. Um, you'll see in verses 3 down to all the way down to verse 13, the phrase in. Have a look at, um, at the end of verse 3. It says, in heavenly places in Christ. Have a look at verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him. In verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, In whom we have redemption. Verse 8, Wherein he hath abounded unto us all wisdom and prudence. Then at the end of verse 9, Which he hath purposed in himself. Verse 10, In the middle of verse 10, it says, Might gather together in one all things in Christ. Verse 11, In whom at the end of verse 12, who first trusted in Christ. You see, this whole plan of salvation does not exist outside of Christ. Our salvation, your salvation, does not exist outside of being in Christ. And so Paul is going to emphasize this as he goes through. And so at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We are only blessed with spiritual blessings because of Christ. Because God accepts Christ. And through salvation, we are in Christ. Hence, as you'll see in verse 6, we are accepted 
in the beloved. So we are, it's only through Christ that we can be accepted. It's only through Christ that we can be saved. Now, because of the beauty of this plan, this, these verses to follow, Paul introduces it in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. He starts off, before he gets into the, the, the magnificence of this plan, he says, Blessed be the God and Father because of the beauty of this plan. Bless him for making it possible for us to be among the blessed through Christ. Then it also speaks about spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, these spiritual blessings, um, this is obviously not a short list. And neither do I want to attempt at giving you a full list. Because even if I attempt that, I'm sure I will be missing a few things. But I think the general idea Paul is trying to get through is that when we get saved, okay, we are baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And then we are sealed. We'll see all of this. Then we are sealed by that same Spirit. That Spirit is then, as it's referred to in John 14, is the Comforter. So we are comforted by that Spirit, which now lives in us and works in us, that we may grow in spiritual maturity. It would then be safe to say the following, that these spiritual blessings are all the blessings and mercies included in the New Testament covenant, such as justification, peace, pardon, adoption, fellowship, sanctification, eternal life, and inheritance. All of those things I mentioned are going to be in the verses to follow. And all of those things are our part because of us being in Christ. All those spiritual blessings. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, the question is, is there a condition to this choosing? Does the verse say, according as he hath chosen us before the foundation of the world? It doesn't say that. It says, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So there is a condition. The Calvinist would like to take this verse and what they refer to as unconditional election. They would take this verse and say, God unconditionally elects. But there is a condition. The condition is, are you in Christ? Because you see, this, this election or this choosing is not unto salvation. The rest of the verse says that we should be holy and blameless without him, uh, without blame before him in love. And you'll see what he's also referring to as we go further on. So we know that the condition is in him. It also doesn't say that God, according as he has placed us in him. That's not God placing us in Christ. It is God choosing those who are in Christ. We are chosen because we are in the chosen one who is Christ. We are chosen because we are in the chosen one. All right. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, I'd like you to turn to that quickly. Um, actually, just make a reference. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. Um, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, if I'm not mistaken. And there you'll see that the chosen one, God's chosen one, as it's referred to in, in, in um, Isaiah 42, is God's elect. 
And this is Christ. So God, Christ is the elect of God. And because we are in him, we are then also so-called the elect. But it's based on the condition of being in Christ. Um, God knew who would look up at the serp a serpent in the wilderness, as it speaks of in John 3 verse 14. Um, so God knew. God has foreknowledge. We've recently looked at it in Bible school in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, where it says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And so our election is based on God's foreknowledge. But that election is not unto salvation. That election, you'll see, is unto adoption. It's unto good works. And so um, that is what God has elected us unto. And it's based on his foreknowledge, not his forecausal. Pastor Mike uses the illustration to say that if I tell you all that tomorrow, if you wear a blue shirt, I will give you a hundred rand. Now, that means that you still have the choice of whether you want to wear a blue shirt. But if you, and if you wear the blue shirt, I choose you and I give you the hundred rand. And that's all, that's the same way. If God chooses those who are in Christ, who are wearing the blue shirt. Now, what are we chosen for? That's the question. So God chooses or predestines or elects those who are in Christ unto the adoption of sons, unto holy living. You see this in verse 4 to 5. Um, verse 5 says, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we are chosen unto Adoption, we are chosen unto holy living. And then also, a verse we looked at very recently is Romans 8 verse 29. We are chosen unto the confirmation of um, Christ. In Romans 8 verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, there's foreknowledge, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So in Romans 8 verse 29, foreknowledge precedes the predestination. Okay. And that predestination, that choosing, is unto um, the conformation to be conformed to the image of his son. And so that is what we are chosen unto. That is what we are elected for, not unto salvation. One more thing that I want to point out in verse 4 is that it says, Before the foundation of the world, God knew the outcome. God has foreknowledge. We don't deny that. God, in his foreknowledge, could already make this plan, a predestined plan, that those who would come to faith in Christ should be adopted and live holy lives. That does not infringe on our free will. Neither does it refer to an arbitrary election of individuals to the one side to salvation and to the other side to damnation. God gives us the free will. He extends his grace to everyone. But the application of that grace is only to those who are in Christ, who have made the choice to give their lives to the Lord. In verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 1, you can just let your eyes go down there. It says that we should be to the praise of the glory who first trusted in Christ. So it's about us first trusting in Christ. And once that trust has been placed in Christ, 
we get baptized into the body of Christ. We are then partakers of this. We are then adopted into the family. And that plan of God starts where he wants to conform us to the image of his son. Verse 5. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So we've already spoken about this predestination unto adoption. But I would like to say one more thing about this adoption. So have a look at Romans chapter 8. You can turn to Romans chapter 8. Now, this adoption, this adoption has a spiritual side to it and also has a physical side to it. The moment you get saved, the spiritual side happens. You are adopted into the family and God starts this process of conforming you to the image of his son. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, it says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the work that he begun, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the moment you get saved, you are not completely conformed to the image of Christ. Neither will you be throughout your whole life. You can spiritually conform more and more. And in your conduct, you can conform more and more to the image of Christ. But ultimately, we still have a sinful nature. We still have this flesh. And that also needs to be changed. So, by the way, Philippians 1 verse 6 is your attendance verse. Um, so, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we see the context there. It's this spiritual adoption, this internal adoption that starts. But then it has a final outward working. And we see that in Romans 8 verse 23. Verse 23 says, And not only they, speaking about creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. So we are waiting, but it just said that we are already adopted, but it spoke there about the spirit. But here it says the redemption of the body. So ultimately, as it says in Philippians 1 verse 6, that that work which is begun internally will ultimately be performed, completed in Jesus Christ at that day, which is the rapture when we will receive our glorified bodies. Um, you can turn back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. Now at the end of Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. God's will, specifically in verse 5, is that all who are in Christ would be adopted into this family. So we, that we, essentially everyone will be saved. And this will of God has always existed. God's will has always been for us to be in Christ, for us to be have fellowship with him. I hope that that brings comfort to you to know that God's heart, God's will has always been to reconcile us sinners to him. Um, he longs to restore and enjoy fellowship with us. Briefly on the subject of God's will, um, I think the first thing I just want to point out is that God 
wants you to know his will. He wants you to know the will he has for your life. In Ephesians 1 verse 9, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 17. Ephesians 5 verse 17. It says, Wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. God's will is not something that he's trying to hide from you. God's will is something that is revealed in scripture and that he wants us to know. That is why we have the word of God. That is why we know in scripture that his will is our salvation, which he's speaking about now. Our sanctification, which is also spoken of in this context. That we will be spirit filled and walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Um, That we will be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that we would also say thanks. And all these things are revealed. This is all part of his will. And I think if you, if we all focus on applying that, the smaller things of his will, the specifics of his will, will become, I want to say, second nature. And he will reveal it to you. He does not try and keep you in the dark. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The fact that God has a will, has this will, this predestined plan to adopt sinners into his family should bring praise to his glorious grace. Nothing we did brought this plan into action. Only God's glorious grace brought this plan into action. And nothing brings more praise to God than an unworthy sinner's life changed by his grace. So Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, we did nothing to receive it. We do nothing to keep it. It is purely his grace. And nothing praises him more than a lost sinner admitting that it's only by grace. But I want you to notice once again, the condition is in the beloved. God accepts us as one of his own. Why? Because Christ breaks down the enmity that existed between God and us and replaces it with peace. So Christ comes, he breaks down that enmity that existed between us and he brings peace. In Romans 5 verse 1 and 2 it says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, through It's in Christ, by whom also we have access by the faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is pure, pure grace. And this is salvation that brings unity between God and man. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The riches of of his grace. These these riches of grace were shown at Calvary, where Christ willingly laid down his life. There were the just died for the unjust, the free for the enslaved, the worthy for the unworthy. The riches of his grace. It's not just it's not just grace, it is the riches of his grace. In verse 8, it says, wherein he hath abounded unto us. It's like Paul is really trying to emphasize it, that it's not 
up to us. It, it, we can't do anything to make us, ourselves worthy of this grace. Christ willingly laid down his life to show us the riches of his grace. In Romans 5 verse 20, it speaks about where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So no sin is too great for God to forgive. He's, the riches of his grace far exceeds the abject poverty of our sin. Now, it also speaks in verse 7 about through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sin. Now, to understand the importance of the blood, we need to have a brief look at the Old Testament. So I'll read it to you in Leviticus 17 verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have not given to you. Sorry, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. In Isaiah um, uh, 53 verse 7, we know it speaks about the Lamb of God. This Lamb that was um, oppressed and afflicted and he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is dumb, he openeth not his mouth. Obviously speaking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah was to come. Now that you see that it is the blood that makes atonement and Christ is this lamb that was prophesied of, of in Isaiah. And then we know when we come into the New Testament in, in John chapter 1 verse 29, we hear the, um, John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Christ's sacrifice, his blood that was laid on the altar, is the blood that cleanses us, that takes away our sins. Now, how did he do that? Have a look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So we know that it is through this blood that the start of the New Testament happens. This blood of Jesus Christ, by which we are bought, by which we are forgiven, literally divided history in half before Christ, after Christ. It literally divided it in half. It started a new covenant. And so I hope that the blood of Jesus Christ has started a new chapter in your life. You can turn back to Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it speaks about redemption. Redemption. Now, I'd like to just read you what 
redemption means because I think it paints that such a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. Redemption is the act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent ransom or release. So it's the act of procuring deliverance of persons from a possession or a power which we were held by captors. Obviously, we were captive in our sin. And we'll actually see this next week in Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses where it speaks about where we've come from and where God has taken us to. Verse 8, Ephesians 1 verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The grace which is so readily and abundantly available, which we read about now, isn't recklessly wasted or randomly distributed. It is done wisely and prudently. So these two words, wisdom and prudence, are very similar. And they are often used synonymously. But one commentator made a good distinction for me. I'll read it to you. It says, prudence differs from wisdom in that it is exercised more in foreseeing and avoiding evil than in devising and executing that which is good. So executing that which is good is wisdom. Knowing how to do that. But prudence is foreseeing and avoiding evil. So you see the foreknowledge of God come into play here. And then also the plan of salvation, the wisdom to how to solve this sin problem. So I think Paul is making the following point. God in his foreknowledge understood the need for a savior to save humanity from the evil we are in. There's his prudence. So he devised the best possible plan of grace to do so, and in executing it, satisfied his justice and love. And there is his wisdom. So God made something so great, something so, I want to say, nearly impossible to justify a sinner before a righteous and holy God. He made something so great, simple and understandable to us through his wisdom and his prudence. Verse 9. Wherein he hath abounded unto us with all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. So through God's wisdom and prudence, not only did he come up with this plan, but he knew how to reveal it to us and make it understandable to us. So what aspect of God's will is Paul talking about here? Well, if you look at what he's been speaking of from verse 7, which from verse 7 to 12 is one sentence, you'll see that it is the holistic picture of salvation, this plan of salvation. So it is God's will for all of us to be saved. God wants everyone to be redeemed and forgiven. We'll see in verse 10 that God wants all of us to be redeemed and be gathered together in the unity with Christ. We also see that we are redeemed so that we may have an inheritance with glorified bodies at the rapture. We see that in verse 11. We are also um, that the redeemed will live lives that praise God from the point of salvation into eternity. 
because of what God has made possible through this predestined plan. And so God's will is all of this, this whole plan of salvation, how everything fits together, how it starts at the point of your salvation, how it should affect your life, what is waiting for you in eternity, and your fellowship with God. Now, why did God reveal this mystery to us? It says, um, according to the good pleasure of his will. But it's also from the previous verse, because it is wise and prudent and for his good pleasure. It is wise because by telling us what this plan is, we are all well equipped to achieve this high calling of God. That's why it's wise. And it also gives him pleasure to see his children adopted and walking in light. Um, and that is why it's also um, according to his good pleasure. It gives him pleasure to see us understand it, apply it and live it. Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Once again, even in him. So in Christ we are, um, this, this um, dispensation of fullness of times is simply referring to a predestined time when the time is full, when the time is ripe, when, when it comes to a culmination. All right. So at this time, when all these previous ages, the times of the Gentiles, the times of um, the time of the Jews, the time of the church, um, the, every, every time that preceded it, when all of that comes together, then this event will take place. Now, this event is the rapture, um, this gathering together in Christ, as it says here in verse, verse 10, both which are in heaven and which are in earth. You'll notice if you know your Bible is similar language to 1 Corinthians 15 and also 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4. When 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it speaks about Jesus coming down with the shout of an archangel, um, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. But then it also speaks about the, those who are alive and remain will also be caught up in the clouds with him. So here we see that these dead and alive, those are the ones who are in heaven and the ones who are on earth. These saints will all at this rapture event be gathered together in Christ. And we will receive our glorified bodies at this event. Um, and that's actually what we'll also look at now at in verse 11, this, this inheritance. Verse 11, in whom... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will. So, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. Now, we know from the context of 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that our glorified bodies are take place or get given to us at this rapture event. So, this inheritance as much as it is true that we will inherit in the kingdom with Christ as well, excuse me, this inheritance is an inheritance of our glorified bodies. You can open to um, Romans chapter 8 and um, also 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Romans 8 
and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'd like to show you why I say that um, this inheritance is the, the glorified body. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So this whole plan has been about us being in Christ and becoming more like him. This final confirmation to the image of the Son happens at the rapture when we obtain our inheritance, which is our glorified bodies. In um, 1 John 3 verse 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, all right, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay. So we shall be like him in that glorified um, body. Now, have a look at... Mm, I've asked you to take go away from Ephesians, but I'll read it to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Ah, oh, man. 13 and 14. It says, In whom... You also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now listen, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So there's a redemption of the purchased possession that happens as well as part of this plan. Now, in... Um, in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans 8, verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groaneth in ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption. There's that redemption again. The redemption of our body. That's that adoption. It's that redemption of our body. It's purchased. And spiritually adopted, but finally physically adopted and redeemed. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, For now, for we for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So when this body, this tabernacle, dissolves away, we have a house eternal in the heavens, not made with hands. And then it says, verse 2, for we groan. That groan is the same language we find in Romans 8. For we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So we are waiting. We are earnestly groaning. We are excited for this redemption of this purchased possession. We know that we are purchased by the blood of Christ. The church is purchased by it. Um, we are not ourselves, but we are bought with a price. So we know we are purchased, but this body will be redeemed one day when the rapture takes place. And um, in First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I'll read to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, 
reserved for you in heaven, right? So we have this, this what's, what's waiting for us is this redemption of our body, this glorified body. So that is what the inheritance is in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse um, 11. So you can go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. Um, so this inheritance is just the finalization of God's predestined plan to make us ready or fit for eternity in his presence. Now, God has assured and sealed this plan. No, oh, sorry. How God has assured and sealed this plan is another amazing thing. And we'll look at that in detail in verse 14, how God has uh, made this plan sure and fixed and guaranteed, I want to say. So verse 11 continued. Um, the verse finishes off by saying that this inheritance is part of God's eternal plan because God willed it to be so. I hope this shows you something about God's will. His will is for our ultimate and final good and through that, his glory. And we'll read about that in verse 12. But his will is for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. Um Let's get into verse 12. Verse 12 says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. This fits right after verse 12, um, after the, the predestinated. So if we read this, um, verse 11, sorry, verse 11 up to predestinated. So it says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, now he's going to speak about according to what, but being predestinated then unto that we should, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance and then being predestined, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. We are predestined to be Live, living lives that praise and glorify God. The first step of praising and glorifying God is salvation. We've seen that. We've spoken about that. The first step is putting our trust in Christ, as it says at the end of verse 12. So your life can't be pleasing, right, to God until you are in Christ. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, For without faith, it is impossible to please God. That, that faith needs to be placed in Jesus Christ. And from that point on, you have the ability, the capacity, the spirit living in you, um, this eternal hope. You have all of this uh, uh, assurance of salvation, all of this awaiting you. And therefore, your life can be to the praise and the glory of him. So I encourage you to hide this thought in your heart. The thought that my acceptance and ability to be to the praise and the glory of God is only possible if God looks down and finds me standing in Christ. And this is also true for eternity. You will one day look back and see how this whole plan of God worked out. And this will result in an unending praise and glorifying of God. When you look back and you see this plan, there's only praising for him. But also, looking forward, you only can praise him if you know 
that you are saved and that you are in Christ. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So I want to say verse 13 summarizes, in a sense, the steps of salvation. We see that there's hearing, there's trusting, and then there's sealing. Hearing, trusting, and sealing. Have a look at it again. In whom, after, in, in whom also you trusted, but what preceded it? After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed. So there's the, there's the hearing, the trusting, and the sealing. There's a lot that can be said about each of these, but I'm just going to try and say something briefly about each of them. So when it comes to hearing, what must we hear? We see from verse 13 that we must hear the gospel of our salvation. Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So it's the gospel. That is what we must hear. But how will people hear if no one preaches, right? The whole context or the whole section in Romans 10 where it speaks about that how can they hear without a preach and how will they preach if, if less, less someone is sent? Um, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God must be taught. It must be preached because that contains the gospel and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Hearing, I want to say, and even positively responding does not lead to salvation. A lot of people hear the gospel. A lot of people like the gospel. And it, it falls nicely on their ears. But what else is required? It says, in whom you also, uh, in, in verse 13, in whom you also trusted. It's not just hearing. It is trust. It's not a blind, lightweight belief. It is a trust. Trust means to deliver, it says, delivered in confidence to the care of another. That's what the Webster's Dictionary says. Delivered in confidence to the care of another. So when someone delivers themselves to the finished work of Christ, they no longer trust themselves to save themselves. That is what trust means. They deliver that. They transfer it. In the Strong's Concordance, it says this trust is to hope in advance. Hope in advance. So you place your faith, your future, in the hands of God, believing what he said rather than what you think or feel. And that is trust. And that belief, that type of belief, that transfer, that complete eternal hope, you stake it all on the work of Christ, not on yourself. And that is what trust is. And after that, you've trusted in this finished work of Jesus Christ, this redemption that he has worked for us. We are sealed. This whole plan is sealed. And the sealing can be thought of in two ways. And I, I, I like both of them because they're both such a beautiful picture of what it means. The sealing means that it is unopenable. It is airtight. It is locked. It can't be unopened. And that speaks to our eternal security. It is preserved by God. We are preserved by God and for God. But then also the seal is a conforming, uh, a, a confirming or a certifying 
or an assuring of his promise. Kind of like when a king stamps or seals a letter to be sent. It means that it is a certified letter. It is it is from the king and um, it is assurance from the king. So there's the preserved in preserved by God, which is locked. But then also there's the assuring, the assuring, the certifying of it all by God. So this seal in its entirety speaks of our eternal security. And that is brought by the spirit. Now, verse 14. This is where it gets interesting. I like this verse, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The earnest of our inheritance. Now, you can keep Ephesians open, but um, turn to First Second Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Now, this word earnest means um, like... We don't use it this way anymore, but it means almost like a down payment. Um, it's a pledge, a down payment, if you could put it like that. A pledge given with the purchase of a property in the form of a down payment. So it's a security for the rest. So it's saying, I am paying this deposit. I am paying this, this um, down payment. To confirm or to assure you that I will pay the rest later. And so when the Spirit seals us, it's the earnest of our inheritance. It is the down payment. It is the first payment that this work will be complete. This, this payment will be made. It will be ultimately, this bill will be satisfied. And it is the, the Spirit that sealed us that is a, a promise of that earnest. Um, or that, that completion of the work that will be done. So in 1 Corinthians... Uh, oh, 2nd Corinthians, I open to 1st Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians, chapter 1, and verse 22. So it says here, Who hath also sealed us, and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We see also there is the earnest and that we read in, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, the earnest of our inheritance. So God has secured us in his eternal plan by giving us the pledge of his spirit as proof that he will, he will complete the purchase in due time. The spirit is the pledge. It's given to us to know that God will complete and completely change us in that day of Jesus Christ. And this whole plan is ultimately for the praise and the glory of the one who saved us. That's what it says at the end of verse 14. Now, up until now, I've been trying to emphasize the in Christ. So all of this plan is based on in Christ. Our adoption, our acceptance, our living in God's world, the rapture, the inheritance, the eternal security. It's all dependent on one condition and it is this in Christ. It's not acquired through our efforts. It is neither sustained by our efforts. It's purely by God's grace. Now, Paul has taken us through this predestined plan of salvation. And now he will show us um, or, and how it came to pass in these Ephesian believers. So he took us through this plan and showed how it, took, it happened in their lives. And with his heart focused on the gospel and God's goodness in these people's lives, Paul breaks out in prayer 
for them. So he thinks about this and how it's come to pass and he breaks out in prayer for them. I see I'm running out of time almost. So we'll go through these last verses quite quickly. Um, so verse 15 and 16, Paul, I want to say, almost introduces his prayer. And then verse 17, he starts praying. So verse 15 says, Wherein I also, after I heard of your faith, you see, he's thinking back, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love of the, love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention in, of you in my prayers. Paul mentions two things that compels him to pray. Thanksgiving, ach, faith, and fruit. Those are the two things that compel him to prayer and thanksgiving. He says, making thanks, um, wherefore also of, verse 15, sorry, wherefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love unto all the saints, which is fruit bearing towards other people. And so it is the faith and the fruit that pushes him to pray. That's the way it should be. Faith is evidenced by fruit in the believer's life. That is the only evidence that you and I can go off of when we look at someone else's life is their confession and their fruit. And so if you see that in someone's life, it should make fill your heart with joy and that you make prayer or that you pray for them. So when a local body of Christ yields fruit, the primary fruit, which is called love, because Paul says, without love, I am nothing. Right. So if a, if a local body of Christ is bearing this fruit of love, it should cause thanksgiving and prayer. For one another, as a bo local body of Christ, all of it should bring, should drive us to prayer. So let's all strive to thank God more for the love we share with other believers and trust him to make each of us exhibit more of this love abundantly. Verse 17, this is where the prayer starts. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of of him so his prayer starts and he prays for something very specifically well firstly he glorifies and elevates god he speaks of the father of glory he then continues to pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him paul is saying that god um, paul is praying that god would grant these believers a spirit that is to say i want to say an attitude which comprehends the absolute blessing they have in Christ. Now, the Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. We know that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are already given the Holy Spirit when we are saved. So when he says to give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, he is speaking about a mindset, an attitude, which comprehends the absolute blessing we have in Christ, which is what he's been dealing with before this. So he's saying, God, reveal more of yourself to us that we may have a frame of mind, that attitude, a frame of mind that is connected to your divine wisdom and revelation. When we speak about revelation, this word is obviously misconstrued in, in, in many ways. But when we speak of revelation, it's not something mystic, right? It's something that is shown in scripture. Here it says, revelation in the knowledge of him. So as your knowledge in God and in his word grows, more of God will be revealed to you. 
And Paul is praying, may this be their part. May they grow in the knowledge. May God reveal more of himself to me, more to them. And may they understand who they are and what they are because of being in Christ. Now, verse 18 and 19, let's read it together. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power so why pray for wisdom and revelation as we just read in verse 17 and a deeper knowledge of god verse 18 that they may know so why do you pray for wisdom and revelation that you may know what is and then it goes the exceeding greatness of his power to us according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, so that we may know this. At salvation, your eyes are opened. Now he is praying for an enlightenment. That is to say, a deeper, a more sure fellowship. This is not some second blessing or some external magical revelation from God. Rather, it's a renewed or a changed outlook that is brought in line with what is true. It's God bringing us in line, our, the way we think of ourselves, the way we think of God, the way we just express ourselves and the way we live our lives, bringing it more in line, more true, more aimed with what God expects from us. So Paul's desire for every saint is to be more than just saved. We've dealt with salvation and the promises that go with salvation, but now he's saying for an enlightenment, for more revelation, for more wisdom, for a different attitude. So he wants us to be more than just saved. He focuses on a deeper, on the deeper things to be enlightened on. Now, time is going to fail me, but there are three things that Paul wants us to be enlightened of. The one is the hope of his calling. We see that in verse 18. The other is the glory of his inheritance in the saints, which we also see in verse 18. And then we also see the third thing that he wants us to be enlightened of is the power of God. We see that in verse 19 and 20. The power of God. Now, I'm not going to go into each of those I wanted to. I will maybe just post it on, on the Bible school group when I'm done. But I just want to mention something. The glory of his inheritance, um, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We are God's inheritance. Not we inherit God as in eternity, which we do, but he's saying we are God's inheritance and we will bring him glory. That is something to, to ponder on. And I hope it fills your heart with a lot of joy to know that you are something that God is eagerly awaiting to reconcile or to, to complete and to conform to the image of his son for an eternity with him we are his inheritance that is something to look forward to indeed all right verse 20 it says which he wrought in christ so it's speaking about this power okay the power of verse 19 what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his power which he wrought in christ so in verse verse um 19 the power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that will rise us 
one day from the dead. It's that same power that lives in us. We read that in Romans 8 verse 12. Now in part B of this verse it says, And set him at the right hand in heavenly places. Christ is seated at the right hand in heavenly places. Now to understand the significance of this, we just have to look at a few verses and I'll read them to you. So the first thing of the significance of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is that Jesus is exalted to the highest honor in the universe. Okay, Jesus is at the highest honor in the universe. This also signifies the saving work is complete. In Hebrews 10 and verse 12 it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So after he had made that sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So it signifies that the payment for our sin is complete forever. It also is the position from which saving power is displayed, this right hand of God. In Psalm 17 verse 7 it says, Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand um, them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against thee. In Psalm 20 verse 6 it says, Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from the holy heaven with saving strength of his right hand. So it's from this right hand that we see saving strength of Jesus portrayed. And also from Romans 8 verse 34 we know that it is from this right hand that Christ intercedes for us. Romans 8 verse 34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So it's there where Christ intercedes for us. We know that the Spirit groans for us, correcting our prayers, um, making our requests known unto God. And um, so it's from that position. And it's also because of this position of Christ, the right hand of God, that we are seated in heavenly places and we can boldly approach the throne of God. Because if Christ is seated at the right hand of God and we are in Christ, we are there and we can boldly approach this throne um, of grace. Verse 21, it says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in in that which is to come. So verse 21 and verse 22 is a full prophecy of Psalm 110 verse 1 and Psalm 8 verse 6. You can write that down as a cross reference. But in verse 21 and 22, Paul labors essentially for words to convey the greatness of the one seated at the right hand of God. He says, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the one that is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave unto him um, to be the head over all things to the church. So he is essentially struggling to, how do I magnify him more? So Paul's purpose in saying this is to encourage these believers by not boosting their self-confidence so he's trying to encourage them but he doesn't focus on them he focuses on the one 
who they find their power, their identity, their salvation, their eternity, their security, their peace in. So he boosts their Christ confidence and not their self-confidence. I think that's such a relevant lesson because so many of us in society at large these days are so self-centered, so focused on my happiness. How do I find my sense of security? How do I, you know, find my purpose? But it's all in Christ. And as long as you look for it somewhere else, you're not going to find it. And so Paul directs them and tries to comfort them, not by comforting them directly, but by pointing them to the one who is so great. So our Lord and Savior is elevated above all ranks of men and all other created things, angels, demons, Satan, and it is forever. He says, till for world to come. He is forever exalted, forever on high. If this is the case, what do we have to fear in this world? We have nothing to fear. Verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now, if Christ is the head, then we are all subject to him individually. So I am in, I am need to be subject to Christ and so do you, but also commercially as in, as in the whole church as well. Our ministries, our conduct, our message, all of this need to be subject to Christ as head. So what we teach, what we preach, what we do, what we don't do, all of that is because of Christ being our head. Each of us should desire to know our head, um, to know a desire, <laughs> each of us should know what our head desires of us in our own lives. And I'd like to show you that, or just point out to you, that Christ's headship is not an authoritarian type of leadership. It is one of service. It is one of sacrifice. It is one of humility. It is one of example. That is Christ's way of leading. That's his way of being ahead and we know that according to 1 Corinthians 11, there's a headship that's also given to a man. The head of the man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man, right? There's her husband. And so I think all husbands and all men who will and want to be husbands need to take note here. Because as Christ lived his life in as our head and as he currently leads us, so we too should lead our homes and our wives at home, not in a dictatorship, but in love, humility, and service. Verse 23, it says, let's just get verse 22 with context. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, right? So the church is his body, the fullness of him that fulfilleth all in all. So we know from basic discipleship that the church is the body of Christ. And in this body, we are all united. Remember the theme is unity. We are all united, yet distinct. Okay? We're not all the same, but we're all united. Um, we are all there to serve one another. But ultimately, we are there to serve Christ. And we serve Christ by serving one another and by serving others around us. So... Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, you can page there, but I'm going to read it as soon as I get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. About the, you, you may have noticed in Ephesians, that last verse, it says they're all in all. 
So here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are diversities of, of gifts, but the, but the same Spirit. So notice it's speaking about the church and the, the gifts that are given to those in the church. So it's the similar context of the body of Christ, which we just spoke about in Ephesians chapter 1. So there are diversities of gifts, but of the same Spirit. Verse 5, And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. All of the gifts in the church are given by the same Spirit for the edification of the church. All of these gifts work together in unity, all in all. But the same holds for Ephesians 1 verse 23. All of the salvation spoken to of in the whole chapter, the salvation, this great plan of God, is fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, he fulfills all in all. This whole plan comes together in Christ, including the body of Christ and the eternity of the body of Christ. And so in, to summarize Paul's prayer um, in, um, at the end of chapter 1, he essentially prays for spiritual growth, theological understanding, and worship and magnifying God. And those are the three things that he focuses on in that prayer. All right. Thank you for your patience. I hope that was a blessing to you as it was to me preparing it and teaching it. Um, if you have any questions, I do not know how to do the restart thing that Pastor Mike does. I'm scared I break it. So I'm not going to do anything. But if you have any questions, um, please feel free to send me a message and I will try and get back to you as soon as possible. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that we could spend this time in your word tonight, Lord. It's been a great blessing. And um, what a wonderful, wonderful plan that you made, Lord. Thank you that we can be in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we have a hope, that we have peace with you, that we have an eternity that never fades away, that you've given us your spirit, it sealed us, Lord, and nothing can change that, and we have fellowship through that, and Lord, we just thank you so much for this plan, and for your wisdom in putting it together and making it known to us, that we can live lives that are pleasing unto you, Lord. Help us to see the heart of Paul towards these people, and give us more and more of that heart for one another that we would pray these things for one another, that we would encourage each other to grow in these, these things, Lord, and ultimately that we would know you more. You would reveal more of yourself to us, Lord, as you enlighten our steps every day and we grow in the knowledge of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful evening. And I'll see you next week, but I'll virtually see you on Sunday.